Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I got one. Here we are. How's everybody feeling this summer? Anybody out? You're hot. Yeah. Everybody's AC working? Yes. Good. I know it's the, kind of the worst time for anybody's AC to stop working, so hopefully everybody is staying nice and cool. Well, today we are going to continue uh, on our journey through the book of Genesis. If you've been with us for a while, we've been working our way almost chapter by chapter, sometimes taking a couple chapters uh, at a time, working our way through uh, this book. The, the nice thing for me this week is I only get one chapter. I was like, yes. Um, so I'm not sure how it kind of worked out, but we've just, I guess this chapter just kind of stood alone uh, in itself. So we're basically looking at Genesis chapter 28 uh, is the only chapter we'll be looking at uh, this morning. Uh, but this actually is kind of a, a continuation of the things that, that Bill was talking about uh, last week. Uh, so if you remember kind of looking back at, at last week and some of those things, we'll, get, we'll review that in a little bit. Um, but uh, remember, if you've missed any messages, uh, you can find them uh, online uh, through the website or, or through our sermons website, and you can kind of catch up uh, on all of the Genesis series that you had missed. It's been a, an exciting series uh, to work through. So let's go ahead and pray, uh, and we'll dive in to see what God has for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that we can gather here in your name, lift up songs of praise, that we can hear from your word. Lord, be with us now and be with me. Let my words be your words, Lord. As, as we see from Genesis 28 uh, what you are teaching us and what we can think and consider uh, upon our lives today, Lord. Lord, be with us as we worship here, but be with all the churches around the world as they gather, some in peace and, and some in struggle and fear. Uh, may we all just lift up praises to you, knowing that we put our hope and trust in you and your Jesus, our Son, and your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're kind of looking back at, at Bill's message. And remember, Bill kind of talked about this great deception that had happened, right? We had the story of Jacob getting the blessing instead of Esau and how this was plotted on by his own mother to get this blessing. And today we're going to see kind of the further effects of all that was happening within that story. As Bill said last week, this, this family would have been great on the Jerry Springer show, just all the, the turmoil and the sin that runs through this family. But as we've been talking about throughout this whole series, this is the chosen line of God. This is the, the line that is going to produce Jesus Christ. But throughout it, it is so messed up. Sin after sin, failure after failure. And as I think even Bill said and other messages have said, this is not the way you'd want to start a religion. This is not the way you would want to point out all these failures of all these leaders. But this is what the book of Genesis lays out for us. And one of the questions I, I thought to myself was, why? Like, why point out all these things? And, and it came to my mind that, you know what? The simple answer, I think, is because this, the focus of Scripture is not on man. The focus of Scripture is on God. And yes, we are going to fail 
over and over again, but the constant theme throughout Scripture is God and how He is faithful over and over again. We disappoint, we fall in sin, but He is faithful and true. And that's what I think we're going to see as we look to His Word today. We're going to see an all-loving God who loves us no matter what, who will always be there for His people. And as we turn to Genesis 28, we'll get a fuller picture of this. So, as the book of Genesis opens in chapter 28, we see from the previous chapter what is going to be our first point for today is disappointment. We're going to see a continuation of sin and failure running throughout this family. First, we see Isaac. He has completely failed his family. You see, remember, Jacob is still not married. Now, remember back to my last message when when Isaac was unmarried and and the length that Abraham went to find a wife for him. Remember, he kind of did that awkward upper thigh kind of promise, hand under the thigh, saying, hey, will you find my servant? Will you find a wife for my son? He was 40 at the time, Isaac. Most believe, as you kind of lay things out here, that that Jacob might even be as old as 70 years old at this point and still unmarried. So Abraham makes his servant go off and find a wife for Isaac, sends him off with riches, saying, don't find a wife from the Canaanites, but find a wife for my own people. And now we hear Isaac, his son Jacob, still unmarried and alone. The other son, Esau, is married. In fact, unfortunately, he's been married twice. He has two wives, both not of the nation of Israel, both not of the family of promise. Some think maybe Isaac, by having this, was still trying to have Esau promote the line of promise. Since Jacob wasn't married, he can't have kids, and the line will not continue. Who knows what's happening here behind the scenes? And as we come, though, to chapter 28, as the blessing has been stolen, and I think Isaac realizes that his son Jacob is the child of promise. He realizes all of his failures, and his favorite Esau was not going to be the one who gets the blessing. After all, if you remember, this is what God told them from the beginning, that the youngest will be the blessing. So in verse 3, we pick up this story, and we hear this Isaac giving this blessing to Jacob. It says this, it says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give a blessing to Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, so that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. Do some of those words in the promise sound familiar? It's the promises that God had given to Abraham and to Isaac. And now Isaac is repeating these promises to his son Jacob. Promises of land, of blessings, and of many offspring. See, God is still at work within this family. Then as we see, Jacob is sent off. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But see, he, and he's given the same instructions as he's sent off. He says, look, don't find a wife from the Canaanites. 
Go back to our people. Find one from them. But as the story continues, the sins get worse for the family. Esau continues in his life of sin. And I think this is important for the Scriptures to point this out. Because as you're reading through this, you can kind of think to yourself, man, Esau is getting kind of a raw deal here. He's getting his birthright taken from him. He's getting his blessing stolen from him. How, how This just isn't right. But remember, Scripture tells us that he gave up his birthright. And, and then it tells us that he, he is sinning in the same way. It's not like he is this, this perfect son who's getting everything taken away from him. He, he's not the most greatest choice either for this nation's blessings. And we kind of start to feel bad for him, but we realize just how awful he has been as well. And look at all, what, how this response is. So here's how this story plays out. He is apparently hearing the conversation between Isaac and Jacob and getting the instructions of hearing, okay, don't marry a, a wife from the Canaanites. Now, Esau currently has two wives, not of, of the Canaanites as well. So he's already down two. He's, he's two in the hole. He's got two wives from the Canaanites. So in verse 8, it says this. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife besides the wives he already had. You ever had a kid do this to you? you, you the kid knows that there's something you don't like. There's something that you've set a rule against, and they just kind of go off and do it anyways. Sometimes it works with a toddler, right? You'll see a toddler about to do something. You're like, no, don't do it. And the toddler just stares at you, and maybe they're holding a cup in their hands, and they say, don't do it. And they just kind of go, and just pour it out, just out of spite. That's kind of what the picture we almost get here of, of Esau. There's a couple of different things you could see, but it's like, yeah, he's like, oh, you don't like marrying outside? He's like, well, let me go to Ishmael, you know, the, the, your, your brother, the one who was the older brother too, and then you kind of rejected him. Let me go marry one of his descendants. And he's like, I'll just make it a little worse for you, God. Quite the family, isn't it? Do you feel pretty good about your family right now? Not too many nods, so maybe not. All right, well, we'll see how it continues. So all these things happening in here. Because of everything now leading up to this, Jacob has to flee. His sins that have been brought upon him, his deceptions. Esau, now we find out, wants to kill him. And now he has to leave. Disappointment just running through this family because of sins. Now, if you remember, Esau was Isaac's favorite, right? And Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. He was a, a mama's boy, and there's nothing wrong with that. But as Jacob leaves here, one of the heartbreaking things you realize, because of his sin, because of the disappointments, as he leaves, he's never going to see her again. By the time now he leaves and he comes back later on into the story, she will have passed away. And this great bond, this great habit, well, you could say a great bond of deception, I guess, and of lying, but he's never going to see his mother again when he comes back. You see, sin reaches deep into our lives, and the consequences can run deep. 
All this disappointment and, and the sin had just destroyed this family. Isaac and Rebekah have one son who wants to kill the other son. The other son has deceived his brother and his blind father and is now going to leave home all alone. Sin only destroys. How have we sinned and seen sin and disappointment in our own lives? What we see in our own lives are the great destruction that sin causes. How do you feel after you know you've sinned? Maybe you feel awful. You feel regret. You feel just a range of emotions. Well, Paul, through the book of Romans, is going to lay out a lot about sin. And in Romans 3.23, he's going to say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody sins. Everybody falls short. And then in Romans 6.23, he's going to say, For the wages of sin, the effect, the cause of sin is then death. As we sin, we deserve death. Pain, suffering, disappointment, hurts, and struggles, all brought on by sin. The problem is sometimes we don't really see the consequences of our sin immediately. We continue on in sin, not seeing the damage that it's causing. Now, it's an extreme example, but but think about the the spouse, spouse who was having an affair. And maybe they think they can keep this in secret. Oh, nobody is going to know. But eventually our sins find us, and they are revealed. You see, in the end, families are destroyed. Relationships are destroyed, and there is brokenness. Everybody in this room is affected by sin, and not just in your your personal lives, but in your relationships to others as well. Sin defeats us. It, It leaves us worn out and feeling broken. See, it's this also this struggle that Paul will talk about later on in Romans. And in Romans chapter 7, he's going to say this, beginning in verse 23. He says, But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? captive to the sin that lives within us. Oh, wretched man that I am. Is that how we feel in our brokenness? Is that how we feel with this sin in our lives? And I don't know for sure, but maybe Jacob felt that way as he was going off alone, going off on this journey down to be married, no riches to be given, no servants with him, off all alone. Paul asked the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, we realize that we need deliverance. But where does that deliverance come from? Well, that leads us to our next point, the point of discovery. You see, Jacob is about to discover God. For the first time, God will reveal himself personally to Jacob. I'm sure, hopefully, he's heard about God through his grandfather Abraham and through Isaac. But this is the first time that he is going to hear directly from God. So let's see how this continues, beginning in verse 10. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down to a place to sleep. And he dreamed. 
And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and at the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and of the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offsprings, shall all your families on the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So now we join, we join Jacob on this journey. And we are told that it comes to night, and he's going to do the natural thing when it comes to nighttime, and you're traveling, you're going to find a place to rest. And he comes to a certain place. But Jacob didn't just find some random place. He came to the exact place where God wanted him to be. God had a purpose in everything. God's plan and timing were always right, and he brings him to the place where he just needs to be so he can reveal himself to Jacob. I'm sure Jacob didn't think that he was in the right place, away from his family, on this journey. But he was where God wanted him to be. So he lays down using a rock as a pillow. Doesn't sound very comfortable to me. This was certainly not a my pillow in any kind of way. But here he is, alone, using a rock as a pillow. So Jacob has a dream. And he sees that there is a divide between heaven and earth. But there is a ladder connecting them. The word ladder is kind of better translated a stairway leading to heaven. No Led Zeppelin references, please. Angels are coming up and down. And the Lord is at the top. God speaks and he tells Jacob, look, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac. Then God repeats the same promises that we have seen throughout the book of Genesis. Words of promises of land, and of blessings, and of numerous offspring. Remember where Jacob finds himself. He finds himself alone, with no one around him, with nothing. He has paid a great cost because of his sins. But even in all his disappointments and failures... God still has a plan of promises for him. The promises will continue. The promises of God did not depend upon us. Remember, Scripture is about God, a faithful God, and everything points to him. So he gets the same blessings, but he actually gets some additional blessings. Look at verse 15, where he says again, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. He says, remember, he is leaving this promised land now. He is going off to a foreign land. Esau will be living in this land. But he says, God says, I am with you. I will keep you and I will bring you back to this land. He says, I am not done with you yet. Jacob, you might feel alone, but you're not alone. I have a purpose for you. 
And those must have been great words for him to hear. God will never abandon. He will never leave his people. Over and over in the Old Testament, he repeats these words. In Exodus, in chapter 3, he's going to say these words to Moses, I will be with you. And then in the book of Joshua, he's going to tell Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then in Judges, he tells Gideon. Remember how great Gideon is? Gideon thinks he's nothing, right? The least of everything. God, how you, you can't use me. And then he gives all these tests. If you do this, I'll follow. If you do this, then I'll do something. All these things. And God says, look, I'll be with you. I will be with you over and over again. So what does all this mean for our sin? What does this mean for us today? But before I get to that, I want us to look back at Genesis chapter 11 and then the Tower of Babel. Remember, the people are building what, they, what we believe to be a ziggurat, this great structure that has like steps leading up to heaven. They were building this in efforts that they could reach heaven on their own. And this was similar to what we believe Jacob is dreaming about here. And at the top of these structures, they would put their idol, or they would put their God on top of these things. And if you remember, what Jacob saw was the Lord at the top of his structure, his stairway. In the garden, God walked and dwelt with Adam and Eve. But sin created a great divide between heaven and earth. Sin had broken that relationship. And now, as Paul said, we are captive to our sins, and a holy God can have nothing to do with that. There is a separation. But the people at Babel, they, they wanted to fix it on their own. They wanted to, to build a tower how it, high enough in their own strength. If we build this, if we work hard enough, we can fill the gap. We can reach heaven on our own. This is how the world wants us to think about fixing our separation. Be a good person. Let your good outweigh your bad. We can fix the gap. Be a good person. We can reach heaven on our own. But what happened? God struck down the tower. He, he then further divided the people by confusing their languages. Reminded me of Proverbs 14, 12, where it says, There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it's the way of death. There's a way that we think we can achieve things in this world, that we can work through things, but it leads to nothing, and it leads to death. So if we can't fix this separation, what fixes it? Well, the answer, I think, lies in the dream. What does God say to Jacob over and over? I will be with you. So the question becomes, where do we see this? I will be with you in the New Testament. And I think we see it in the very opening in Matthew chapter 1 as he is quoting the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. We would never be able to build a tower high enough. We would never be able to do enough good to fix the divide in heaven. Jesus came to this world to fill the gap, to become our fixer, our savior. Jesus in John 1 actually makes a connection between this dream and himself. Listen to the words as he calls to the disciple Nathaniel in John chapter 1. I'm going to begin it in 
verse 47 uh, for the full context. In verse 47, it says this, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, I want to pause there for a second because think about this. What have we been talking about with Jacob over and over and over again? Deceiver, a liar. And here Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him and he says, Look, behold, here comes an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Let's continue. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In verse 51, he says, Here we go. He says, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Look at verse 51, and what does that remind you of? It reminds you, right, of this dream that we saw, angels ascending and descending. But what's missing? There's no stairway mentioned. There's no ladder mentioned. Instead, what are they ascending and descending on? On Jesus, the Son of Man. One commentator wrote, it says, The ladder of Jacob's dream became the cross on which Jesus died. That he filled the divide, he fixed the division between God and man, God with us. So let's go back to Paul's words in, in Romans 7. If you're familiar with that passage, you know I kind of stopped short at the greatest part within those verses. Remember, he's talking about the struggle in our lives of sin, and I'll read the whole section again for us. It says, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of the sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he gives the answer here and he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, do you love that verse? Do you love that section? I am lost in my sin. I am a disappointment in my sin. I feel so alone in this world. But thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. You see, we all need to discover and find all that Christ has done for us. He fixes the gap. It is nothing that we do. It is all on him. Even our, our best actions are worthless. And that's tough to hear. We can do good here on this earth, and we should, but those in no way will ever get us into heaven. We could never do enough. It is only through Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. After all this, then, we come to our final point, and it's the idea of dedication. Let's read the rest of the section in Genesis, beginning in verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go, I will give my bread and, eat, <clears throat> and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. 
so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And, I will give, and, and of that I will give you a tenth to you. So Jacob has this dream and these promises and he wakes up. And the first thing he does is take that rock that he was sleeping on and he sets it up as a pillar or as an altar as we see. And then he pours oil on it, consecrating it. He realizes that something important has happened here. And he wants to dedicate this area to God. This was a common practice in this time. Remember, there was no kind of central place of worship. So as these things would happen, we would see them have an encounter with God and set up an altar for remembrance. It's the very same thing Abraham would do in Genesis chapter 12 in almost the same exact area, setting up a remembrance and say, God is here. He is in this place. So as they're on these journeys and they see these things set up, the kids can say, well, what was that for? And they'll say, let me tell you what God did here. It's kind of as you would walk through D.C. maybe and see all the memorials to reflect on all that had happened through our country. And that's what's happening here. They would see these pillars set up. And they'd say, that's where God was with us. That's where God helped us. And that's what he is dedicating this place to. He renames the place Bethel, meaning house of God. This city, this place would be a reminder forever of where God met Jacob. He does something more now. He makes a vow. And listen again to this vow. He says, look, if you are with me, if you keep me, if you give me bread and clothing, then this, you shall be my God. And this stone will be a remembrance of that. And then he says, and I will give you a tenth of all I have. Now, commentators are kind of split on this interpretation of the vow. Some kind of take it as a if-then, where he's saying, if you do this, then you will be my God. Some kind of take it as, since you've done this, you are my God. So you can kind of debate amongst yourselves about how this is interpreting. But I think we see the important part is he is making a vow to the Lord and saying all these various things and showing himself that I want to be faithful and I will follow you and this pillar will be a reminder. This oil that I mentioned this giving of the tenth, all these things I am giving to you, my Lord. Jacob will worship God and give him an offering. He is making not only this place dedicated to the Lord, he is saying, you will be my Lord. And then he is saying, you can also have my possessions. This place, my life, my possessions, all these I'm giving to you. It was in this place of disappointment that I discovered you, and now I dedicate all that I am to you. Do we have the, the same dedication to God within our own lives? Where we're lost in a place of disappointment, lost in our sin, but then we discover Christ, and now we say, I'm going to dedicate my life to following you. We could even use the words, if you want, disciple. Are we dedicated in our discipleship of following Christ? In our small group, we started going through the book of Matthew a couple weeks ago, and we looked at the calling of the disciples. 
And if you remember back into Matthew chapter 1 and, and verse 18, it tells us that as he's walking, as Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, he, he comes across the, these fishermen. He sees Simon, who was Peter. He sees Andrew, his brother. And he says to me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And it says, immediately they left and they followed him. And then he went on a little further, and he saw two brothers, James and John, working with their father, mending their nets. They get the same call, and immediately they leave and follow him. We were kind of joking in our small group, like, what was the father thinking? Like, here he is, like, working with his sons, and all of a sudden his sons are like, peace out, Dad. We're going to go follow this Jesus guy. He's like, no, no, we got, we got work to do. We got nets to mend. What are you doing? And here they are, going off, leaving behind their jobs, their families, all to go after Jesus Christ. Here is the call of Jesus, to leave everything and follow him. Job, family, everything. Remember, we hear in Mark about Peter's mother-in-law, about being, her being healed by Jesus. And if Peter had a mother-in-law, he had a wife. Well, father-in-law too, but a wife. Here he is married. How many wives in here? Your, your husband comes and says, hey, I'm leaving for three years. I'm going to go off and follow this guy, Jesus. He's going to make me a fisher of men. They left relationships, their source of income, all to follow him. In Mark 10, in the story of the rich young ruler member, the, the young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus lists off all these commandments, and surprisingly, the guy says, hey, I'm good on those. And Jesus says, well, sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. And then it says, basically, the rich young ruler, his face turns almost, and he says, I, I, he, he turns and leaves. That's too much, the scripture tells us. He was of great wealth. He turns and walks away. In that same section later on, we realize that as Peter and everybody is saying, this is hard what you're saying, God. This is hard what you're saying to follow you. And Peter even says, look, we've left everything to follow you, to follow you as our Savior. Then, in John chapter 6, we get another account. We get here the feeding of the, the 5,000. We get Jesus walking on water. Then we have Jesus teaching about him being the bread of life. Jesus calls out his followers who aren't really dedicated to him. See, he knows that some people in this crowd are only following him because of the food that he's given to us. Kind of like how you just kind of hang out at the church potlucks just wanting that food and that blessing. So he goes through and he knows these people, all they want is food. They want to follow him without being dedicated to him. And as he's going through these things, he's talking about what it means to follow him. And again, Scripture tells us that many of them turned around and left. And again said, these things are too hard. We can't follow all these things. This is a hard saying, they would say. But then we pick it up in verse 66. As those are leaving, it says this. So this is John 6, as he talks to the disciples. It says, After this, 
many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And then Peter says this. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What an amazing statement from Peter. He says, where else would we go? Where else would we turn? He says, you have the words of eternal life. As we think about following Christ, we realize that he should be the most important things in our lives. Jesus says, I, be, I come before family, jobs, sports, hobbies, everything else falls short of me. Where is our dedication? Are, are we willing to give up everything and follow him? Or are we just like the crowd that only wants the blessings but no dedication? Or the rich young ruler who only wants to hold on to the things of this world? See, we cannot have two masters. We only have one in Jesus Christ. The worship team can make their way back up to the stage. You see, in Genesis 28, we go on quite a journey. We see the disappointment of the sins in Jacob's family. And then we see how Jacob discovers how God is revealed to him. And then finally, Jacob dedicates the place where he is, his life, his possessions, all of it to the Lord. See, our, our, our sin destroys us. It, it breaks relationships. Well, we need the eternal life offered in God being with us. And we need to dedicate our lives to following him. It won't always be the easy road, but it's the life that we're called to. And God was faithful to Jacob. His promises remain true to him and to the family. In the same way, God is faithful to us. He's calling us to a life of dedication to him, to fix what was broken in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the, the words of Genesis 27, of the encouragement that you gave to Jacob as he began this journey all alone. Lord, we, we think about the disappointment that sin brings into our lives. When we think about how you reveal yourself to us in your son, Jesus Christ, that he is the one, Emmanuel, God, with us. And then we consider how we dedicate our lives to you. Lord, are we all in and following you? Are we saying this place is dedicated to you? My life is dedicated to you. And my possessions are dedicated all to you, Lord. Lord, we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.